Welcome to another episode of Indiana Politics. I'm Deb Chubb, and we are very uh, honored to be here with Indra, Dr. Indra Frank from the Hoosier Environmental Council. And we're all very sad this week at um, what has been happening, I guess not just this week, huh? in the state legislature, um, in particular about environmental um, bills that have come up. Um, we want to talk first about the wetlands bill. Um, that one um, had such widespread opposition. Uh, so the bill is intended to uh, remove protection from wetlands, uh, which would allow development on those wetlands and really um, negate their whole purpose of filtering water, um, you know, creating habitat and, re and reducing flooding. Uh, in other areas. So, um, so um, Indra, if you could just tell us a little bit more about the bill and, um, and tell us what ended up happening. And then of course, I wanna know, you know, should this bill go into effect? And I understand now the latest version makes it retroactive. Um, what is the impact on our environment? Sure, Deb, yeah, good to be with you this morning. Um, so Senate Bill 389 started out the legislative session as a complete repeal of Indiana's wetlands law. Um, it, it really was a shock to, to see that introduced into our legislature and it was rapidly passed by the, the Senate. Although uh, the, the vote was not overwhelming, it was 29 to 19. And among those 19, there were members of both parties that opposed it. Um, from there, it went to the house and there were um, extensive negotiations over what, form, you know, this, this bill was going to take, uh, you know, to what degree are we going to deregulate our, our wetlands? Um, but unfortunately, the negotiation was entirely between the senators who authored the bill and uh, IDEM, our Department of Environmental Management. Um, there were many stakeholders, you know, with interests in this bill and many stakeholders with wetland expertise who were not part of the negotiation. Uh, well, tried, I have to add, I yeah. am sure that there were lots of other people, stakeholders, they would call themselves, uh, without expertise, who were involved in those mm -hmm. negotiations. Um, that is, um, developers uh, who were eager to get a return on investment on every square inch of property that they owned by developing it. Yeah, the, the chief uh, driver behind this bill has been the Indiana Builders Association. Um, in fact, at one point, there was a much milder compromise that came out of the House Environmental Affairs Committee, it would have uh, done some things to help farmers who have wet, wet spots that they have to deal with, um, but it didn't deregulate the wetlands extensively like the Senate version did. And that compromise version was backed by you know, lots of organizations. Um, really the only organization that wanted more was the Indiana Builders Association Unfortunately, they, they got it. Um, the final version that has now passed the Indiana General Assembly um, removes protection for all of the class one wetlands and class one wetlands are more than 50% of our remaining wetlands. It significantly reduces protection for the class two wetlands and the class two wetlands are about 40% of our, of our remaining wetlands. So we could see a substantial loss of wetlands if this bill becomes law. So let's talk about what that means. You know, what does it mean when we, uh, you know, when wetlands that we used to rely on to, you know, uh, manage a lot of uh, runoff water 
and flood water uh, are covered now by you know concrete or a parking lot. What is, now? What is, now? Where does that water go? That's exactly the point, right? That when we um, cover that land with buildings and with concrete, um, the the water runs much faster into the streams and ditches. And faster moving water is more erosive. So we wind up with bank erosion and ditch erosion. It also means that that water isn't being held by the wetland. And, you know, wet, wetlands can hold up to a million or even 1.5 million gallons per acre. And while they're holding that water, it's, it's soaking in and recharging the groundwater. Okay, so now we're going to lose that recharge of our groundwater. It, it could have an impact on people who have wells. Um, and by recharge, you mean filtering out all kinds of things that are in rainwater and runoff water, um, you know, including pesticides and nutrients and whatever other, you know, oil products that uh, are in runoff water that sit in a wetland and then filter them. And, and when you say into the aquifer, you know, you mean the source of your drinking water. Oh, yeah, for two thirds of of the people in our state, groundwater is the source of, of drinking water. And you're absolutely right. Wetlands filter and, and purify our water. And then on top of all that, they provide habitat uh, for wildlife and for some of our wild plant species. Um, in fact, it's estimated that about 50% of our threatened or endangered species are dependent on wetlands. Wow. So uh, so we can look forward to, should this you know law, uh, you know, become in, enacted, uh, we can look forward to a lot more pressure on water treatment facilities um, who are not doing great now. Uh, as we know, and I know this is, gets very complicated, but you know, storm sewers that you know, manage a lot of the runoff are sometimes separated from the, um, the sewer water that comes out of your home as wastewater. Uh, but in many cases, not so much, especially if there's more water uh, going into this into the uh, storm sewers, storm drains. Uh, and uh, at some point, if there's too much, it mixes with the sewage and then all of that just overflows into the nearest waterway. Um, we saw that a lot in, in South Bend a couple of two or three years ago, um, you know, huge amounts of sewage and whatever else is in the, you know, is in the, in the, the wastewater coming out of your house and running off of the asphalt on the road, mixing, not getting treated, and going straight into the river. So we're gonna see a lot more of that, I think, aren't we? You know, that's that's right. The fact that wetlands absorb and store water keeps it from going into our stormwater systems so quickly. Um, <clears throat> and that puts less pressure on our stormwater infrastructure. And as you said, if we've got more wetlands in the landscape, we wind up with fewer uh, sewer overflows. So yeah, all set. All when it's all said and done, wetlands are the most cost-effective stormwater management system there is. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course we haven't even really, you know, contemplated the uh, flood, the flood problem. <laughs> so anywhere that uh, you know is around uh, wetlands that will be gone uh, are now going to be looking at that water tootling onto their property. Uh, and onto their into their basements, onto their roads. You know, if the storm sewers can't even handle it, it's just going to back up. Uh, and of course, it can, you know, they back up for all kinds of reasons, you know, blockages, etc. Um, and then that's going to be in the streets. And uh, that's, that's going to be a worse problem. And um, I, 
and all those ditches as well. I mean, that is a huge problem. Uh, there's the, the ditches that, you know, they, in Indiana, they're called regulated drains, but mm -hmm. they're the ditches that you see along alongside country roads. And uh, those are, uh, those are also filters when the water is moving slow enough uh, and when they are not scraped clean of the vegetation <laughs> that, is, that grows in there, then they act as filters too. But of course, uh, once water is moving faster, once there's more water that has to go in there and move through there, um, there will be pressure then for people, uh, you know, there's regulated drain, drainage boards. Um, it'll be more pressure on them to scrape those uh, waterways clean so the water can move faster. And again, less filtering. And in my case, that water ends up in Lake Michigan, which is you know where everybody recreates as well as where we get our drinking water. So, um, so there's lots of interesting things to look forward to uh, if this passes. So uh, now tell us uh, the current status of this bill. Where are we now? Is there, what can we do? <laughs> Well, it was just a couple of days ago that it passed its final hurdle so that in the legislature. So it has now passed our legislature. At this point, it goes to the governor's desk. And I know of a number of groups that are um, calling on the governor to, to veto this bill. So that'll, that'll be the next step is whether the governor signs or, or vetoes the bill. Now, of course, as we've seen, um, it only takes a simple majority of our legislature to overturn a veto, but um, the legislative session is coming to an end. They're not due to reconvene until the fall when they take up redistricting. So maybe between now and the fall, if there's been a veto, we can you know, talk to more of the legislators and, and see if we can't uh, educate them about the value of protecting our wetlands. And um, you know, there are a lot of groups that also agree that our wetlands law has been in place for 18 years and now would be a good time to really examine it, look at how it's functioning. Are there things we could do, be doing better? Um, in, in fact, uh, there was a proposal uh, for policy alternatives that was signed by 90 different organizations um, to, to make some changes. You know, we, we need to slow down and take a look at, at that proposal. Um, we need to look at, at how the bill is functioning or how the law is currently functioning and, and what changes you know, could be beneficial to the state. So my hope is that there will be a veto and that'll give us a chance to have more of these dis uh, in-depth discussions. And so people can call the governor now mm -hmm. and you know, beg and plead um, for, the, you know, for the state of Indiana's um, survival. <laughs> Um, to veto this bill, um, and then maybe take another look, um, you know, over mm -hmm. over the next few months. All right. Well, that's something. Um, okay. Now I want to um, shift uh, to another topic. I want to talk about the coal ash lagoons. Um, we know that Indiana has more coal ash lagoons than any other state in the country, and we We're are. Number one. <laughs> oh, is that not true anymore? Oh, no, we, we are. Oh, we're we're number okay, one good. in the number of coal ash impacts. Okay, good, good. So, I, you know, correct me if I say something that's not right. So, um, and, and, and these coal ash lagoons are the legacy of uh, burning coal to create electricity. Uh, and, of course, all of these um, uh, coal burning electricity generating plants were situated on waterways uh, because they use that water to cool uh, machinery uh, during the process. And all of those coal ash lagoons were plopped you know, right next to those uh, facilities. 
And they were put in there um, at a time when no one even considered putting a liner underneath. Uh, and so, uh, in a, and at a time when people were not really considering the impact of having, you know, all of those heavy metals, uh, you know, arsenic, you know, all that stuff, uh, you know, seeping into the ground. And, and, you know, it does make you think about the evolution of people's understanding about the connection. You know, just like right now, we can't seem to get builders to understand that there's a connection between a wetland and the water that comes out of your faucet. Um, you know, back then, nobody had, nobody understood the connection between putting down this toxic, you know, waste of, of coal burning, the, you know, the remnant of the burning uh, into the ground and what that might do again to the water that comes out of your faucet. Um, so, uh, so, and I know we've been talking about, um, you know, cleaning up those coal ash lagoons, what we're going to do with them. Uh, and I know that there were a couple of bills you mentioned that were, we're trying to put some regulation on the process uh, that didn't get any hearing. Um, and we have been working in my neighborhood up here in Michigan City uh, with NIPSCO, who is, you know, voluntarily getting away from coal, moving on to wind and solar. And so planning to close the coal ash uh, or the coal burning plants and uh, are in the process of working on a plan to resolve these coal ash lagoons that are, you know, like I've stood there and, you know, right there's the lake and right there, you know, right there is the little wall, the rusty old seawall um, that's separating Lake Michigan from this coal ash lagoon. And, um, and so, and I think there's different states of progress all over. So can you give us a little overview of what's happening around the state with coal ash, uh, you know, disposal? Sure, no, that was, a, that was a good summary. And it's true, after we burn coal, unfortunately, the ash that's left over has toxic heavy metals in it, including arsenic, molybdenum, lithium, uh, cadmium, cobalt. I mean, there's just this laundry list of toxic metals. And it depends on which coal was being burned and, and what kind of pollution controls they had in, in place. So it varies somewhat from place to place. But I'll tell you what, everywhere in the state that we are currently storing coal ash without you know, some kind of liner underneath it, like you, like you were just talking about, you know, every place that we don't have a liner underneath it, we've got contaminated groundwater. And as you mentioned, um, most of our coal ash is sitting right next to either Lake Michigan or one of our major rivers. In fact, the majority of Indiana's coal ash is sitting in the floodplain. Um, and that means that that contaminated groundwater is, is in connection with Lake Michigan or in connection with the river. I mean, our, our groundwater doesn't hold still. And usually it's flowing into the, the adjacent uh, waterway. So what we've got is contaminated groundwater and then the contaminated groundwater moving into Lake Michigan or into um, the, the Kankakee, the White River, the Wabash River or the Ohio River. Um, the, best thing to do with coal ash is actually to use it um, in a material that will lock away those contaminants. For example, there's some coal ash that gets used in cement. That's fantastic. Okay, you're not going to contaminate water after you um, mix the coal ash into cement. Um, if the coal ash has to be disposed of, if it can't be used for bricks or cement or something like that, um, the best disposal would be a landfill that has a, a liner underneath it and then an impermeable cap over the top. Because 
you, you've got to keep the coal ash dry, right? When coal ash is in, con or is in contact with water, we contaminate the water. So, um, and of course that landfill that has the liner under it and the cap over the top really needs to be on high ground, right? I mean, if we're, if we're disposing of coal ash in the floodplain, then during the next floods, we've got water seeping into these disposal areas and you know, more water contamination from the, the coal ash. Um, the other concern I have for these, for the coal ash disposal that's in the floodplain is that eventually those floodwaters are going to erode into the structures that are holding the, the coal ash and we could wind up with a spill. Right, it makes you wonder even now, you know, well, cause all of them are just open on top, the lagoons now. And now that we're having more and more intense weather events and, you know, heavy rains, you know, you know, they're full, they're gonna flop, you know, it's all gonna flop over the edges. Uh, certainly here, you know, the one near Lake Michigan, you know, the level is, you know, it's not that much higher. And it wouldn't take a whole lot to really, if we had a big flood, you know, because our wetlands are all built over and there's nowhere else for the rainwater to go, you know, this is another way that we're going to see these floods really impact our water, so. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, there was flooding in North Carolina that overtopped some of their coal ash impoundments and carried coal ash into their into their rivers. So it's, yeah, it's possible. Now, um, all of the coal ash structures that I'm familiar with, they've, they've built up um, kind of earthen walls that are taller than the 100-year flood level. But, you know, with climate change, we're getting more precipitation and we're getting higher floods than our historic 100-year floods. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, that language all has to change because, uh, you know, we've had, I don't know how many hundred year fl floods, hundred year rains in the last, you know, five years. I mean, yeah. that's, that, that language just really starts to irritate me now because I've talked to people who are building, you know, landfills and they say, oh no, we set it up for, you know, a hundred year rain. I'm like, yeah, well, we just had 300 year rains, you know, in the last year. And that was you know several years ago. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, when people use that language, it is really disingenuous as to the real, the real possibility of what could happen. Yeah. So, okay. Right. So what's happening, what's happening, you know, here in Michigan city. Okay. So in Michigan city, um, NIPSCO has uh, a plan that has been approved now um, by our state environmental agency to excavate their coal ash ponds. Um, these are the unlined open you know, collections of coal ash, they're gonna excavate those and take the ash to their lined landfill at the Schaefer power plant. Now, unfortunately that doesn't represent all of the coal ash that's on site. Um, there's also coal ash that was buried at Michigan City between uh, 1930 and 1970. And as you pointed out earlier, um, that coal ash is only held out of Lake Michigan by that uh, steel, uh, seawall. So we, as, as of right now, there's no plan for all that historic coal ash. Uh, I'm a little worried because, you know, seawalls don't last forever. No, no. And there's seams that are, you know, that split and, you know, under pressure and, and, and leaks and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and that, that's interesting. Me. I don't think I knew that, that there was um, a coal ash there that was that old. Um, you know, the yeah. NIPSCO plant, I thought was built like in the 50s or 60s or something. So they, no, they started burning coal in, uh, I think it was 1931. 
Oh, no kidding. Well, maybe I'm like looking at the modern NIPSCO uh, building, but interesting. Dang, I had no idea. And so that is actually buried. And so on top of it is just topsoil? Uh, no, actually they built some of their parking lots and buildings on top of the historical oh. ash. Oh, that's interesting. But that's not, that doesn't really count as a, an official capping, right? I mean, it, I mean, it keeps rainwater off of it, but it, it's still moving under the ground. Into well, the uh, yeah, unfortunately, right. The, the groundwater is, is in that historic coal ash. Um, wow. so, so some of that historic coal ash is below the water table. So it's just sitting there soaking in the groundwater. And then the contaminated groundwater is seeping out through the gaps in the seawall into, into Lake Michigan. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you guys, and I, I, I always like to say how careful you all are. You are very, you know, you all are very clear about the danger and everything. Um, but you're always very careful about the facts and making sure it's right. And, and I feel like I want to just, you know, be screaming, you know, hair on fire running around screaming. Um, so, and, um, and I appreciate the hard work that you and your organization does to be so careful about the facts and making sure that um, that what you're saying is really just well-founded. And, and I know you have a, a very strong, you know, academic as well as Jesse and the rest of your, um, the rest of your team, a very strong uh, academic uh, history and, and backing to say the things correctly. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it, yeah, it's very important for us to stay fact-based. Um, you know, the, that's the integrity of our, of our organization. Yeah. That's right. So, and, and, and I can't, um, you know, I can't, you know, just give you enough credit um, over the years, how well uh, Hoosier Environmental Council has been uh, really as a, just a, you can, a reliable, you know, fact-based, careful um, environmental organization. And of course, um, very strong advocates um, as well for actions uh, to go in the future. Okay, so what can people do about the coal ash? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> If, you, if there's a coal-fired power plant near you, um, you can look up what the status of your local coal ash is. Um, in many cases, our power plants are gradually working on cleanup uh, projects, both for the ash and for the contaminated groundwater. Um, and there are opportunities for public input on those cleanup plans. So that's, that's one way to get involved. So wait, um, okay, now yeah. there's, the, there's the first hitch. How would someone know yeah. how to provide their input? Um, where do I go with my hair on fire? Oh boy, yeah, that's a good question too. Um, so the Indiana Department of Environmental Management has a coal ash webpage and they have been posting um, the opportunities for public input when they arise. But you're right, it, it's, it would be a matter of finding that. Now, the, the individual utilities also host um, public meetings to talk about their cleanup uh, plans. Um, and they are supposed to put out notices locally when they're hosting these, these public meetings. And what um, do those notices look like? Is this something in the classified section of the newspaper that nobody buys anymore? 
Is, yeah, well, there, there aren't really standards for how that notice has to happen. I have you know, to, I get it. stuff because I'm on the, I'm on the mailing list, you know, there you go. Right. Uh, but, but that's pretty rare. I've done a lot of environmental work over many years. Yeah. So yeah, I'm on the mailing list, but how would one, if you're not on the mailing list, then what? Yeah. Some of these public meetings, uh, I confess, have been difficult for us to find out about. And that's, Hoosier Environmental Council, where we've right. signed up for all of the mailing lists for, you know, the state agency and for the utilities, um, you know, and still it's difficult. And this is actually, I, I need to give kudos to NIPSCO on this one. Um, I think they did a better job than, than any of the others at actually reaching out to local organizations, even to local government entities, um, to invite them to their public meeting and even to hold uh, kind of one-on-one -on -one meetings uh, in advance of their of their public meetings. So, as far as public notice went, they they did a better job than than we've seen elsewhere. So, I'm not getting a, a good answer here. So, we need to dig a little deeper. Yeah. How can people find out about this, and you know, and do something about it? I mean, this there's got to be some way because so far what you said isn't really I don't think very effective. Yeah, it's it's pretty. It has been limited. Um, the, so yeah, you can sign up to be on, uh, the email list with the, um, Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Uh, you could even contact your local utility and tell them you're interested in receiving a notice when they're going to have a meeting about their coal ash. And then the Hoosier Environmental Council has a coal ash webpage, indianacoalash.org. And we try to keep things posted when, when we know about them. So, wow. I mean, that's like probably a, a full-time staff position. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I can't imagine. So, well, that's something. So again, it's, what is it? Is it HEC or HEC? What, tell me. Actually, that you can, again. you can just type in indianacoalash.org. Okay. Indianacoalash.org. Right. And then you might find out. That's geez, this is crazy. So yeah, now, now when, and, when we, and if ever I have yeah. said, you know, there ought to be a law, this is, you know, a good opportunity to say there ought to be a law that says people, uh, particularly around, you know, these, uh, the, the lagoons and the utilities uh, ought to have proper notice. Uh, so, you know, when, you know, in local BZA, you know, people get a, want to get a variance from the zoning law, um, the local BZA is required to perfect notice to neighbors. Um, you know, before someone wants to get a zoning uh, a variance to, you know, build a garage, you know, but here, um, if someone wants to, you know, scoop up some toxic coal ash and, you know, put it in an open truck and drive it past your house on a windy day, you know, yeah, maybe you'll know, maybe you won't. It, so again, there ought to be a law. Okay, so anything else people can do about the coal ash situation? <laughs> Well, um, so our, our legislature is in the process of uh, passing a bill that would require Indiana to write a coal ash permitting program. And there will be opportunities for public input during that while they're writing that, that program. So, so that's a coal ash um, cleanup plan permit, right? It would, you know, it would be both. It would be okay. permitting to dispose of coal ash and it would be permitting to do the cleanups. Yeah. I see. So, so 
Um, and so, um, but I think you pointed out to me earlier that this is in fact, a, the goal of this bill is to exclude EPA ultimately from uh, being able to approve of the plan. So this is a way to um, keep EPA uh, out of Indiana's, well, out of the coal uh, burning industries business uh, as to how they decide to clean up. Yes, I think uh, what we've heard is that the industry would prefer to deal with the Indiana agency than to deal with the, the Biden EPA. Right, so we just yeah. wanna make sure that- Yeah, they didn't, no they didn't one... request this when Trump was in office. That's right, right. Uh, yeah, so they don't want to have to deal with um, anyone who might have any interest in protecting the environment or and, you know, and I, and I don't think I can say this enough, not just the environment, but the people who live in these communities surrounding these, you know, coal plants and these coal uh, ash lagoons. Uh, those are the, you know, that's the real cost. Those people are really the ones who uh, suffer. And of course, they are often also uh, lower income. Uh, uh, communities, and so have less power, have less power to uh, to dictate how that will be done, or to even know about it. Um, they have less access uh, to all that information. So, um, you know, anyway, don't get me started. So, so okay, um, so we're almost out of time, but I like to always leave a few minutes and just ask, you know, any parting words of wisdom that you can offer us um, I know you're doing a lot of other work too, um, but in general, um, uh, you know, I'm, and we know that uh, certainly, certainly in the wetlands bill, there was a huge outpouring of opposition to that bill and people really got uh, worked up and really tried and, and sadly still failed. Um, so, so give us something positive. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true that that was something positive. We have a huge, broad coalition in support of wetland protection um, that has been formed because of this bill. And it's, it's because of that coalition and because of the many, many people who've contacted their legislators that we saw a lot of no votes on the wetlands bill. It did not, you know, it squeaked by. It, it did not pass in any sort of overwhelming manner. So thank you to everyone who wrote to their state representatives or state senators, um, you know, in support of wetland protection. You had an effect. You really did. And don't uh, give up now. That's right. And don't give up now. Now's the time to write to the governor or call the, the you know, the governor's comment line and, you know, and tell him you've got to veto this bill. We need to revise the law in a more deliberate and thoughtful manner. And the, yeah, the bill that passed is not the right way to do it. All right, great. All right, well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Frank, for joining us. Um, I so appreciate all of your wisdom and all of your very hard, hard work on, on these issues. Well, so, thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you and thank you for everything you're doing to help keep everybody informed. This is great. Well, thank you. We are trying, we are trying. We'll work together and keep, keep trying. <laughs> we gotta save Indiana. <laughs> all right, take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.